do something, just like take a couple hours out of your trip and change people's lives is something that people want to do. People who are, you know, children of mixed marriages, uh, second, third, fourth generation Canadians, no longer Polish people, but Canadians. Um, so I totally agree with you that um, speaking English and being more inclusive that way is, is definitely the way to go. And maybe he was um, reliving his life as a kid, as a kid who didn't know his father, who had a very special relationship with his mother, whom I think is perhaps the most interesting person of the whole story. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're gonna try to show you. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 48th episode of Polcast. Last month was truly record-breaking for us. Our podcast was downloaded by over 18,000 subscribers. Please help us to reach even greater audience by giving us a rating on your favorite podcast We all like and need legends and heroes. All Canadians know the story of Grey Owl, a famous author, lecturer, and one of the most effective advocates of the wilderness, who claimed that he was a native Canadian. This proved not to be the case after his death. Poland has, or maybe had, its own Indian, an iconic writer, storyteller, media personality, a true environmentalist, and a pioneer of this attitude towards nature in Poland. Sat Ok, Long Feather, was supposedly born to a Polish woman and a native Canadian Shawnee chief, then returned to Poland, where he fought in World War II, worked in the Navy, and then started his career uh, of informing Poles and other Europeans about the culture and tradition of native Canadians. Dariusz Roszak, a renowned Polish press and radio journalist and author, has just published his sixth book, Biało-Czerwony, Tajemnica Satokha, White and Red, The Secret of Satok, in which he explores the identity and the legend of Satok, whose original name was Stanisław Supłatowicz. We reach Dariusz Roszak in Warsaw, Poland. Your new book has just been published, and it's a book about a man who was, well, you can say an icon in Poland, right? Author, storyteller, he was called the Polish Indian. So what kind of legend did you have to face in your research, in the preparation for the book? Well, he certainly was a celebrity from the late 50s onwards. Once he started publishing books, and his first book was published in 58, and the book became um, a, an instant hit. It was um, it, actually, it was a very good book and probably the best that he that he'd ever written. And then he published another one, the sequel. And then he stopped writing in Poland. He had a period of uh, uh, very intense work at sea because he was a sailor working on, on Polish merchant ships up until he retired in, in late 80s. And during that time, he was a major celebrity in Poland, a television star. He made programs for young viewers explaining the history of Native Americans and Native Canadians. But it all, obviously, it all started with, with his own history and his own legend or a myth, because he was a mythic person that everybody wanted to exist in the communist Poland. His history started with his mother being a revolutionary, fighting Tsarist Russia at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. She was, according to the legend, expelled to Siberia after the revolution of 1905. And she spent some time 
near Irkutsk, from where apparently she escaped to the Chukchuk country in the north of Russia, and from then onwards to Alaska. It's not quite clear how she did that and who helped her. At some point, she was found in northern Canada by uh, uh, some native Canadians living there, a, a tribe Satok insisted were, were Shawnees, even though apparently Shawnees never went that far up north. She was taken by the Indians to the to the village, and um, uh, she was healed. And apparently, the chief of the tribe fell in love with her, and he married her. She bore him three kids, the youngest of which was Satok, the Long Feather, and they lived somewhere in, in North Canada, between the Bear Lake and the Slave Lake. At some point, apparently, in the 30s, Satok, together with a friend and his older brother, went on a trip to the forest, and they found three white trappers fought a bear, and the Indians saved the trappers, and they took them to the village. One of them started speaking a strange language that uh, the mother of Satok understood. He spoke Polish. He was a Pole, and he explained to, to the mother, to Stanisława Supłatowicz, that was her Polish name, that Poland was free and she was free to come back to her country, the country that she had fought for when she was a revolutionary. So she asked the tall eagle, the head of the village, the chief of the village, to, to let her go with Satok to visit the country, uh, So she, and she did. She went to Poland. They landed in Radom, which at that time was a working-class city in the middle of Poland. They never wanted to stay, but the war broke, broke out in '39, and uh, Satok was arrested by the Germans. And he landed, again, according to the legend, in the same prison cell that his mother had occupied while she was fighting the Tsarist Russia. He spent 10 months in the German prison. And then, apparently, he was sent by the Nazis to Auschwitz. But he escaped from the transport. Uh, he joined the home army fighting in the forest. And he became a soldier, a Polish soldier. And he did fight until the end of the war in 1945. Then his unit disbanded, and he uh, he joined the navy for a while. He became a a, 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 a sailor, and uh, and after that, after about five years, he left uh, the navy. He did some odd jobs. He established himself on the coast in Gdańsk and Gdynia. Around the mid mid 50s, at the end of the 50s, he started writing. At which point he had already been known as a as an Indian, half native Canadian, half Polish. That was the legend. Now there have been quite a lot of, uh, or there were quite a lot of doubts about this whole biography, right? What made you take up this subject? Actually, it, I didn't want to to write a story of false identity. I never knew that the, his identity was false, as a matter of fact. A friend told me his story. I actually remembered him from my childhood, and I read his books. I saw him on television regularly. He wasn't, you know, my, my childhood hero. I was much more into... I don't know, Robin Hood, but I knew him very well, and, and he was a fascinating pe person for me as a, as a kid as well. And anyway, we all were into Indian stories uh, up until, I would say, 70s, 80s, or even in the 90s, there were books published in Poland, traditional Indian stories that sold quite well. So your original idea was just to write a biography? My original idea was to write a story about a national hero. You know, I had written books about um, difficult parts of Polish history before that. I had written books about Polish-Jewish relations. I had written books about people who suffered or people who made other people suffer a lot. And I thought I I, I didn't want to go into it any anymore. And I wanted to write a story about a positive character. And I thought, this is him. And then I started collecting material. Quite early, as a matter of fact, I understood that the, the, the strategy that I took up at the beginning, which was basically to follow the legend, is unworkable. Because I was 
trying to prove things that never existed. Was that a horrible disappointment and a shock for you? No, it wasn't, as a matter of fact, because uh, what was important for me was to, to, to have a story. And I thought the story would be even more interesting for the fact that there was some kind of ambiguity at some point. At first, I thought that maybe there were some ambiguities or maybe there were some things that needed explaining. Maybe not all of it was false. Uh, but then it turned out that, uh, that most of it was basically invented by him or other people. Well, the fact that it was invented by him could be maybe understood. But can you explain from your experience of writing this book, why was it also corroborated by other people? You know, why did other people contribute to this legend, maybe knowing that it wasn't true? It's a question of why, why do we need myths? Why do we need legends? Why do we need heroes that perhaps in reality are not necessarily as heroic as we think them to be? And Satok was a clear example of somebody who, who needed to exist. You know, there are all kinds of false identities. There are people who built their identities on, on very bad foundations. If, if you build your identity or as, for instance, as a, as a Holocaust survivor, and we know a lot of, well, at least a few examples of that kind in, in literature and, and in, in real life as well, then, then there's something wrong with it. He built his identity around ideals that were lacking and that people wanted to have, especially in Poland from the 50s or 60s or 70s. In this gray country, here you have a person who tells you a story of freedom, a story of people who always fought for freedom. He tells you a story of nature that exists in liaison with, with human beings, stories of honor, of dignity. And clearly, it was extremely attractive to very many people. Nobody wanted to jeopardize it. Nobody wanted to ask him the final questions, as a matter of fact, because uh, they thought that it wouldn't serve any purpose. He was a founder of a movement of Indians' friends, or Polish friends, Indians' movements, whatever you call it. People who were fascinated with the tradition of Native Americans and Native Canadians. And very soon, they realized that there are limits to what Satok knew about Indian life. That very many things that he spoke about as far as the Indian history, or the history of Native Americans or Native Canadians is concerned, is simply nonsense. And and they uh, could have confronted him, but they never did that. I think, and the reason being that he, they simply didn't want to, to jeopardize the myth. They, they didn't want to destroy the legend. But you did. You uh, did, and how do you feel about I, it? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Well, you know, there are, there are people who think that this book is, is about destroying the legend. I'm, I'm not quite sure it is. I prefer to think there's a book about about the the strength of imagination, uh, what you can do with your life if you really want to. He was a representative of of a generation of people who were extremely hurt by history. He was a child of war. They all came out hurt without their parents or with the kind of hurt that it's unimaginable for us at the moment. And I think he simply wanted to recreate his own image, to recreate his own life, to reshape his own destiny. And he managed to do that. I'm not quite sure whether he, his mother was really his mother. I'm, I'm, I tend to think that he may have been an orphan adopted by the mother. It was common knowledge that many people who returned from Siberia, returned from Russia in the 20s and 30s, took Russian, Ukrainian orphans with them in order to recreate the families that had been destroyed before. So it's possible that his story was, um, was similar. I don't know. Maybe I have um, disappointed some people. I wouldn't say my intention was to hurt anybody, uh, certainly not to hurt Satok.
That's another question that I have is about your visit to Canada. You stayed for a little while to do some research here, I understand, in Montreal, Ottawa, and in some native places, I guess. What did you find out here? Uh, yes, I, I went to the places that uh, he talks about. I, I talked to the people who, whom he represented as, as his own family. Well, most of it were, was was not exactly not exactly true, but but it's true that that there are still people living in Kanawake uh, on the outskirts of, of Montreal, uh, in in the in the Mohawk uh, Reserve there, who remember him, who and who appreciate him greatly, who remember him fondly, and who don't really care whether he was Indian by blood or not. Uh, they treat him as, as their own brother and as somebody who perhaps tried to build bridges between the two cultures. That means that it's not really that he never went through some of the, of the experiences that he described, right? But the only thing that is not true is the fact that he was the son of the chief of the Shawnees. Is that what it is? Uh, well, he presented uh, a, a woman living in Kanawake as his real sister, which was not true. But uh, what was really interesting, and, and I write about it in the book, is that the natives living in Kanawake do not hold any grudge against him. They do not treat him as, a, as some kind of imposter. I think it's, a, it's, it's very much uh, similar to the story of Grey Ole, who even after he was identified as a as a non-native was not really rejected in a in a very aggressive way by the by the natives well it's obviously it's it's not the first and it's not probably going to be the last case of somebody assuming indian identity as you know as the mohawks told me they they, they call them wannabe indians and sometimes it may be irritating for them but at the same time they don't care that much. I mean, if, if somebody wants to be an Indian, then so so what? Let let him or her be. What are your feelings about this guy? I like him. I think, as I said, he had uh, very weak cards at the beginning of his life. And he reshaped his identity without hurting anybody. And maybe he was... Um, reliving his life as a kid, as a kid who didn't know his father, who had a very special relationship with his mother, whom I think is perhaps the most interesting person of the whole story, and about whom I didn't know uh, that much, and I don't know that much. She died in 63, and she is the only person, I think, who... Who knows the the truth about uh, about Satok, about Stanislav Supatovich, about whom he was, and whom she was to him as well? So, yeah, it's it, it's a guy who who wanted to be somebody else and who persuaded so many people over the period of fifty odd years that he was somebody else. It it, it only shows how complicated human nature is. But I think there's also another uh, aspect to this, which is that he did a lot of good to other people, right? He gave a lot of hope to other people. In, in the times when Poland was under the communist regime, everything was so, so structured and so enforced upon people. And there was so little freedom and so little color and so little talking about nature and about freedom. That's what he gave people. Absolutely. Well, if you're looking for a for a person who introduced ecology to Poland, ecological thinking. I mean, he, he gathered people in the forest. He spent time in, in the forest. He taught kids about nature and about the necessity of living in nature. They came to him looking for answers about real-life problems, and he gave them answers. It, it was all very beautiful. He uh, simply gave people hope, and he should be remembered fondly for it, which he is, as a matter of fact. To learn more about Sadok, Dariusz Rosiak and his book, please visit our website at mypolcast.com.
Today we have talked about myths and legends. The one we will mention now is a bit different, but... Many episodes ago we talked about the historic Wawel Castle in Kraków. The Wawel Cathedral is the place where many Polish royal tombs are, as well as treasures of the country's most famous religious art. But there is some spooky stuff there as well. Hanging just over the main door, you can see a bundle of bones chained together, which are rumored to have belonged to a local dragon. And the bones are really huge, the dragon size. The Dlokan dragon was called Smog Wawelski, a monster living in the cave under the castle. It would devour the inhabitants of the city and every month he demanded a young maiden for lunch. Many distinguished knights from all over Europe were called to help conquer the dragon, but to no avail. And due to his appetite and customs, he probably would have depopulated Krakow entirely had it not been for an unassuming young local apprentice who came up with a brilliant idea. He fed Vavel Smok a lamb, stuffed with sulfur. The dragon ate it, and it made him so thirsty that he drank up all the water from the Vistula River nearby until he exploded. And that was the end of the Krakow monster. Well, are the bones dangling over the Vavel Cathedral door really the dragon's bones? Who knows? Probably not. Or maybe they are. They are more likely to be fossilized whale bones or mammoth bones. Whatever their true origin, they have been there for centuries and they are said to have magical powers. So next time you're in Krakow, don't forget to visit the Wawel Cathedral. Quo vadis in Latin means where are you going? It is the title of an 1896 iconic historical novel by one of the most famous Polish writers, Henryk Sienkiewicz, which contributed to his Nobel Prize for Literature in 1905. Young Polish Canadians have adopted this phrase as the title of their conferences. There have already been 12 of them, the latest one in Burlington outside Toronto on October 13 and 14, 2017. It was a chance for a great group of Polish-Canadian leaders from all over Canada to get together, to network and exchange ideas and work on new ways to do what is dear to their hearts, to keep our history, culture and traditions alive in Canada. Quo Vadis provides a platform for a highly educated generation of leaders with methods and tools necessary to answer the title question and make a meaningful contribution to the Polish community in their country. In fact, the last sentence is almost a direct quote from the message to the conference delegates from the chair of this year's organizing committee, Anja Baritska. We reach her in Windsor. Anya is a perfect example of those highly educated Polish-Canadian professionals who are ready to take the reins of Polish-Canadian organizations. Professionally, I have a Juris Doctor degree from the University of Detroit Mercy, and I also have an undergraduate degree um, in Political Sciences from the University of Ottawa. Currently, I'm working as a law clerk at Miller Canfield. I'm awaiting my Michigan bar results. So you were one of those who, who were there from the very, very beginning. And also this year, you were the chair of this year's, right, Kvavadis conference in Burlington. I've been working with Kovadis, um, Kovadis Conferences Canada from the very beginning, since 2009. This year, uh, for Kovadis Bur uh, Burlington 2017, I was the chair of the committee. We had about 11 members on our committee this year. So let's just go quickly through the story of your involvement with um, the Polish youth in Canada. How, how did this all happen? Why did you get interested? Um, well, I actually never had a choice. Um, my parents have always been very involved in Polonia, um, especially in Windsor, Ontario, where I, I was born and where I grew up. Uh, I literally grew up in meetings. My parents would take me to meetings whether I wanted to or not, and I'd just sit in a corner and listen to everybody um, organize things, sometimes argue, you know, how it goes. So I became involved because when I moved to Ottawa in 2008, when I was 18, which was 10 hours away from my home in Windsor, um, I realized that I was missing something in my life. Besides studies and besides the volleyball I played, I really missed some sort of connection to my culture. And 
a connection to other people who are like-minded, who speak Polish, like I do. So I joined the Polish uh, Students Association at the University of Ottawa, and that's how I got started in Kowadis. Do you speak Polish among yourselves? Um, sometimes we do. Sometimes it's an automatic transition into Polish. Um, I've realized more and more as I've grown up that the, the Polish that I've learned, is it's very important to keep it up because um, it's important in my job as well right now, something that I didn't foresee when I was going to Polish school back in, you know, the early days. Um, so I think we do try to sometimes speak in Polish together because it's, it's important to keep it up and practice it. Well, the movement you started at some point expanded beyond Canada, right? Do, do you find that there are similar issues and, and interests in, in these young groups elsewhere? I think we, we all have very similar issues and very similar concerns. Of course, it's a little bit different, um, I think, even further away from Poland as it may be Australia, um, because there's there's less people who speak Polish, at least in, in my opinion, when I was there at Kowadi, Sydney. But we have very similar concerns. We want to keep up our culture, keep up our language. We want to engage young professionals like ourselves to network, to help each other with jobs, to help each other with internships, um, to get students prepared for university uh, by talking with uh, young professionals such as lawyers, doctors, um, arts professionals, uh, accountants, and everything. So we, I think we really do have the same issues everywhere, which is probably why Kovadis expanded as fast as it did. <laughs> now, there have been how many already? So we've had 11 Kovadises worldwide and 12 was Burlington uh, just this past weekend in, in October. Yes, in 2012, we had a spectacular year. We had one in Calgary and we had one in Chicago and both were really great. Did, did the same people attend? Because it's just so close to each other. Um, that's true, but I think that the demographics um, were a little bit different, especially because Calgary is, is more in the middle of Canada. So we had um, more people from um, Western Canada attend Kovadis Calgary. And Chicago was the first conference that happened in the United States. So it was also the big boom for, for the United States, at least in my opinion. And people came from all over to Chicago from the United States. Have they, have they continued the U.S. editions and the, uh, the Australian ones? Um, so in 2012, we had Chicago. And then in 2013, we had Connecticut. And those were the only two conferences that there were in the United States. And in Australia, we had Sydney 2013 and Melbourne 2014. And as far as I understand, those were the only two conferences um, in Australia. So, no, the conferences in Australia and the United States up till right now have not been continued. Um, but the same could be said for the Canadian ones, because our last one was in Vancouver in 2014. And this one that just passed was in 2017. So there was a, at least a three-year gap in between. What so, happened? Why? Um, it's probably the same issue as we've had in all different sort of organizations in Polonia. There, there was a lack of a, a leader or leaders who would continue it in a different community. Uh, Kovadis takes about a year to organize. Um, it's a lot of work. It's, it's a lot of, um, problem solving all year. You're, you're with a group that, you know, you have to stick with and work with for an entire year. It's a lot of calling, a lot of organizing. So it's, it's a very big endeavor for people who have full-time jobs. And it wasn't easy to find another leader. But you guys persevered and you found the leader, which is you. I took three years off, actually, to go to law school. So right. <laughs> coincidentally, I, I finished and then we organized another Kovadis, but I couldn't have done it without my amazing team. Oh, I'm sure. When you look forward, do you think you're going you're gonna to continue? Do you think there's going to be another Kovadis? Um, I actually do think there's going to be another Kovadis. Um, we're actually in talks with a few people who attended Kovadis Burlington who would like to organize the 10th edition of Kovadis, which would take place in 2019. Mm -hmm. Do you have the location for that? Um, I think we're still in the talks. talks. <laughs> I'm not 100% I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Now, do you think that Canada, because of its uh, general policies towards multiculturalism, immigration, is, is particularly well disposed towards movements like yours? 
Absolutely. I think uh, Canada has always um, pushed multiculturalism instead of assimilation because everybody who who landed here were basically immigrants, um, besides, of course, Aboriginal population. So I really think the policies that have made Canada very strong have been very immigrant-friendly and very multiculturally um, accepting. So I think it's a great place to to breed such conferences like Quovadis and, and places where we can, you know, organize ourselves based on whatever culture we want to propagate. Are there any specific benefits that all of you have as a result of Quo Vadis? And I mean, you know, you were talking about supporting each other in job finding, in your professional development. Do these things really happen in reality after Quo Vadis is done? Oh, absolutely. I could say that I, I got my position, I believe, from uh, all the Kovadis organizing I did. Not directly, but, you know, someone talks to somebody else and somebody needs somebody to work for them. So personally, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I really think other people have had similar experiences. How about the language, right? You, you, obviously, I'm so happy to hear that you're trying to keep the language, right? But, but, but do you also notice that there are people that would be interested because there may be third generation or there may be the kids of people who are already born here or maybe they come from mixed marriages, but there's still interest in the roots, in the culture. How do you address that? Um, I actually very much agree with you. We had a question just before Kovadis, a girl wanted to sign up, but she A, didn't speak Polish, B, didn't really identify with a lot of the current cultures that are in, in Canada for, for Polonia. And she was like, I wonder if Kovadis is for me. And that was a very important question. And I thought, well, just because you don't speak Polish doesn't mean you can't come. We don't speak Polish at Kovadis mainly uh, for that reason, to be inclusive of exactly what you said, people who are, you know, children of mixed marriages, uh, second, third, fourth generation Canadians, no longer Polish people, but Canadians. Um, so I totally agree with you that, um, Speaking English and being more inclusive that way is is definitely the way to go. Uh, what is your vision, long-term goal? Where do you want to be 10 years from now? I think you would have to ask more people from the group. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I think we want to continue Kovadi's conferences as a yearly event to come meet, network, um, and to actually get more people involved who are not involved, because that's that's the main problem, right? Organizations have all these organizers in them who are, you know, getting older, want to move on to bigger and better things, of course. So we need more people who are going to take on the current organizations without creating more organizations to compete with. I'm talking about Polonia organizations generally. Okay, now do you find yourselves as part of those organizations or do you believe that you should have your own because you have your own voice, you're young people, you have different needs. Of course, it's necessary, I'm sure, to keep the contact and, you know, draw on the experience of the older generations. But should you not be at the steer of those organizations already? You guys are over 30, you're, um, you know, professionals, you're no longer students. Well, I would agree with you, but there's a lot of organizations and, and leaders of organizations that would not agree with you um, because they believe we still have to do our time in those organizations and some of our uh, values and some of our tools that we use, for example, uh, communication lines, marketing, social media, they still believe that um, it's not needed at this point in time. So it's a consistent battle I feel that many uh, local communities have, at least in Canada, is, is integrating young people because the leaders of them think that we're still inexperienced. We don't know better. It's been working for 20 years. Why change it, you know? Do you think this conference uh, um, in Burlington has made a significant step towards that goal? Do you think anything has really happened that was revolutionary? Or has it been just one of those that have happened so far? People are slowly beginning to realize things, but it's going to take another five years before they finally realize that that has to happen. The change of the generations has to happen now, not tomorrow, not in five years. Um, I can tell you a little bit about... Um Two meetings that have already happened after Kovadis. It's been a week since Kovadis, and two meetings have already occurred. One of them was to uh, talk about the potential of re reviving a young professional organization in, in Ontario, at least, Toronto, uh, Windsor, etc., and another meeting uh, took place literally just yesterday to f to add in new people into the Peace Organization, Polska Inicjatywa Studentów Kanadzie. Which is the so, students' organizations, right? Exactly. That's a student organization. Um, 
So those two meetings have actually already taken place, but the purpose was to actually organize themselves and to, you know, put new leaders into these older, more established organizations. But you're talking, Anya, you're still talking about youth organizations, right? My question, yeah. yeah, which is wonderful, and I'm sure you know exactly how to do it. But the question, my question was, how much has been done? I mean, Burlington Quadis was organized in such a way that there was an annual meeting of the Congress upstairs, and you guys were downstairs, and there were some joint sessions too. So my question is, do you think that those people upstairs, which is my generation and the other previous generation, have they finally clicked? Have they finally realized that you're no longer students? You need to lead. There's six young people elected to the Canadian-Polish Congress National Board right now. There's only 20 of them, and six of them are, I would say, around 30 and 35 and even younger. Um, I think that's a big change when it comes to um, Canadian Polonia. That's a very powerful position to have a voting voting right on the National Board of the Canadian-Polish Congress. So that's one of the things that has changed since Kowadi's conferences started going on, and, and this um, these people were elected at the last... Um, annual general meetings in October 2016. Okay, but I'm talking about stuff that happened at the Burlington conference. Has anything happened there that is going to be binding and that you see there is a big change or not? Well, it's only been a week. I know, but you heard voices at the conference. I don't mean what happened after. There were joint sessions, I understand. Was there an open mic? Did you hear anything that my generation had to say and the previous generations? Do you think they finally clicked? Um, I'm not sure... Um if people clicked, I think people are a bit more accepting of our younger generation. And some people came up to the microphone and said, we'd like more young people to enter these organizations. So I think the intentions are there. But right now, it's very difficult for me to say anything else because it's been a week. Were there many people at Burlington who were there for the first time? Yes, I would say even 50% were there at Kovadis for the very first time in ever, um, which is a pretty great number, something that we didn't know if we would get more alumni or if we'd get people who uh, have no experience with the Polish community. And what we got was a huge mix, of course, but um, there were a lot of people who had no idea what Kovadis was before they, you know, signed up for it. For you as the chief organizer and working with a great group of people who are your co-organizers, what is the most important thing that happened at Burlington? I think that because maybe we had a much smaller conference, we had um, about 75 delegates, I think that we really had a chance to organize ourselves between each other. And when we had the open mic, we could have very frank discussions. I think that's what made it very easy to transition into some people have to take over PISC now and some people have to organize a young professional organization. And that's why those two meetings happen immediately after Kovadis. So that's something that I could say is is a huge plus from Kovadis Burlington are, you know, passionate people who organize themselves at Kovadis and are actually taking that back to their own communities right now this week. I really enjoyed the conference in Burlington. Then I also spoke to some other delegates. We will present these conversations in our next episodes of podcast under the common title, The Young Leaders. To learn more about Quo Vadis and the youth movement, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Could you please pass me the salt? Pass me the salt. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us about that unpleasant situation you had. Tell us about what happened to you then. These are just some examples of the differences between the English and the Polish ways of saying basically the same, which is asking for something. Many English language users perceive Poles as being not polite enough. But Poles have really no intention to be rude, just a lot more direct and much less elaborate in expressing requests for help or for information. Their intentions get lost in translation. According to a study by psychologist Dr. Zinker from Portsmouth University in England, who examined the way Polish and English families and some mixed families speak to each other. Well, what he found was that Poles often assume when they speak to someone that the other person is definitely willing to help them. 
Their direct manner of speech is meant to convey the idea that they share a positive relationship. But English-speaking people usually expect to be asked nicely before they do something for someone else, and to have a chance to show they are prepared to cooperate. That's what the study found. Polish speech, said Dr. Zinken, assumes that someone else will volunteer to do something. So, for example, a Pole might say, uh, the garbage needs taking out. And someone else in the family will feel it is their job to do it. But in English, such a demand has a nagging quality that it does not convey in Polish. Here are some more observations that Dr. Zinker made. One of the reasons behind the difference in phrasing questions about chores in each language might be because there is a strong sense of communal responsibility and solidarity in Polish culture, whereas in English culture, the maintenance of every individual's privacy borders is important. While in Polish the other person's availability for a chore is assumed, in English families the other person's availability always depends on their agreement. So the problem is not when a Pole speaks Polish, but when a Pole speaks in English and translates the same directness and forms into this other language, which, by its nature, needs different, more elaborate and indirect expressions. So we are not rude in English, we are simply being Polish. At the annual Polish festival in Toronto, among stands with Polish beer and pierogies, folk group shows and other such proverbially Polish attractions, I saw something really interesting. A few young guys with visibly used suitcases under the banner, not just tourists, talking to passers-by with lots of enthusiasm. I stopped to inquire, and this is how I met Krishna and then Jeremy, two passionate volunteers. So, this is one of the two Polish connections, the Little Poland, Roncesvalles Avenue in Toronto, where the festival was held. And this is why we're featuring this great organization on Polcast, hoping that you will get as excited as I did hearing about it. Not Just Tourist is an organization that helps travelers travel with meaning. Essentially, what we do is our volunteers will be collecting donated medical supplies from hospitals that would end up in landfills otherwise. And our volunteers will spend every Wednesday sorting and packing them into suitcases. And then these suitcases are made available to anyone traveling to a developing country, Cuba, the Dominican, anywhere, as long as you take the time to bring that suitcase to a struggling clinic. And usually these clinics are not far from a city. Um, sometimes they're in a city. But generally the issue is that as you get further away from more touristy areas, the need goes way up. As, um, as I saw on my trip, the clinic we went to was a maternity clinic and they only had a couple of bandages. And so a suitcase like ours is between two and four hundred dollars worth of donated medical supplies. And this can last these clinics months. And to be able to do something, just like take a couple hours out of your trip and change people's lives is something that people want to do. People are always taking clothing, they're taking educational supplies to donate locally. But one thing that's so valuable in these areas are things like band-aids and syringes. They're boiling and reusing syringes, sometimes over and over again until they don't break the skin anymore. This is common. And so we give travelers the opportunity to just do something and give back to a country they're exploring. This was all started by a doctor and his wife here in Ontario back uh, in 1990 when they were traveling to Cuba. And essentially, they started collecting these supplies in their garage and their friends heard about it and they all wanted to take supplies to help when they went traveling. And so this has sort of snowballed since then. It's spreading from Ontario. We just um, opened up in Bristol in the UK. We're spreading to the US. We want this to be all developing countries sending these supplies so they're not being wasted going into landfills. So um, if anybody's interested in starting a chapter, let us know. I mentioned two Polish connections. Here is number two. At the festival, Jeremy told me about his Polish girlfriend, Selina, who is also involved with the organization. 
So let's just talk first about your Polish background. Like, how Polish are you? So my parents are both from Krakow, um, and I was raised by them both. So Polish was initially, I guess, my first language. I do speak Polish, but I feel like I could do better. Mm-hmm. What it is now, it, it's I'm, I'm working on it. So um, were you were you born in Canada? Or no, I you- was born in France. So my parents left Poland in like seventy. 70- Seven, I think, and then we they moved to France, and then they had me there, um, and then I was there for like two years, and then we came to Canada in 1988. Did you ever go back to Poland to visit? Yeah, I have. Um, well, my grandma, she lived in Krakow, uh, so did my grandfather. They've passed now, but I have um, aunts and uncles that whenever I do go, um, I visit. And my cousin, who I actually grew up here in Canada, met a Polish girl from Warsaw, so he moved there around like six years ago. So I've, I've visited him a couple times already. So Poland is definitely in my blood, and I just want to bring that into my kids' life and my like going forward. And it's very important to me. So I mean, I, I am very shy with the way I speak. Those. How did you get involved with uh, not just tourists? Uh, my friend Mara, he uh, met Abby. And Avi is basically the the main coordinator, the one mm-hmm. that's put all this together. And he's the one that actually found the church that they have all like that's where they have the packs. That's where they have their basically it's like their home base. Um, so he told me about it, and then I met Avi, and I went to a couple of the packs um, with them, and it was very much like a like a community. It was very small at first, but it was nice to kind of come together um, and do something amazing like this. It kind of brought me back to my roots because I remember my parents very much um, sending Paczki, Dopolski, whenever they could, like with books and clothes. And I come to not just tourists and they're basically doing this with medical supplies and it's medical supplies that are that are being wasted. So it was something that I felt needed. I needed to be a part of. When did this happen? When did you start getting involved? Um, I think it was like three, three and or four years ago. Now I stopped going for a little bit just because of certain circumstances in life. I just didn't have the time. Jeremy moved to Toronto and found it, and then. I guess NJT brought us together again, and now we're together. So, so, so that's another amazing thing that through this organization <laughs> you guys met. What is special about this uh, this group? What's special about what you do? Why there are so many other volunteering opportunities, right? And you decided yeah. to choose this one. Why? Well, I feel like the cause is just incredible, and I'm I'm not a wasteful person, and I hate when things go to waste. So when I found out um, how much medical supplies are actually just thrown into landfills and like not used, I felt it would be great to be a part of something where we can actually take that and bring it to people in need. It's very hard because I'm very much like when I volunteer, I, I like to see the, uh, the the reaction right away. But this is very much there's a process and there's so much that goes into it and there's so many people that put so much of themselves into it and that's what I saw through it that there's so many people that care and I think that's very important that we just continue doing this great cause like it's it's beautiful it's just special to me because first of all because I met Jeremy so I honestly once I got back into it it was because of him and I felt like being there with him and seeing how passionate he was almost brought out a passion in me as well Um, and we were actually able to donate a suitcase together. So now it's forever special. Um, being able to experience that together was an incredible moment. And it's something that I would like to keep doing. And it's something that I would like to have other people do. And like when people travel, it's special to let them know that they can create something great for these people that are in need. How how would you describe the community that um, managed to evolve as a result of this, right? Because the volunteers that come on Wednesday nights when you do the packing, these are people at different from different communities, different ages. Is that right? 
Yes, it literally varies from like high schoolers to retirees. And it's incredible how they all come together and are able to all communicate like so well. They're packing. There's there's a lot of organization. There's no, no money in this, which is also a beautiful thing. It's people just coming together out of their goodwill and their their good hearts to do something incredible and it's every age. So it's you kind of can see the range of how, that there's good in everyone and it doesn't matter if you're like an annoying little high schooler you actually still have a good heart and want to do something good do you hang out um together outside this um organization you meet you you, you keep in touch yeah so after our wednesday packs they we usually go for for drinks just down the street at sangria um, which is one of our favorite bars now. Um, so obviously the high schoolers don't come, but, uh, it's just a great way to just kind of, kind of de-stress and just talk about regular things. They're all just from different walks of life and it's incredible how you can all kind of come together and find a common ground, I guess. Do you ever get feedback? So for example, when somebody actually takes the, the suitcase um, that you've prepared and they actually go and come back to Toronto, do you get stories what it was like for them? Yeah, and most um, most of these experiences are just incredible. Um, my my friend Mara, for instance, he traveled to South America, and his journey was that he literally wanted to go into the depths of the jungle to find the most remote clinic. He basically took this like old suitcase onto a river, then he found somebody to drive him to into like these dirt roads. And upon coming across the clinic, he just, it was incredible how these people still live. It's very primitive. And for them to receive this was something that he had never experienced, this emotion that people actually out there are thinking of mm -hmm. someone other than themselves. And that's usually what the experience is for people. It's it's just a wave of emotions that you, you didn't even know existed. Um, when we went to Indonesia, we donated it in this little village um, outside of uh, Kuta. And we found a driver who basically um, told us, because it's, it's good to kind of ask locals where the clinics are. It's it's good to kind of get into the, the their community and see what, what is important to them. And he was able to uh, direct us to this, um, this little tiny clinic. And he drove us there and we get there and these two ladies are in this tiny little clinic. It's, there's like, four rooms and the store their supply closet has like two band-aids there's like really nothing and we come we we show them that this is what we wanted we were basically donating a free suitcase first of all which they were extremely excited about full of full of medical supplies and i instantly started bawling and i was filming so even if you see this video it's just like so shaky because it's like this emotion that comes over you that you do you finally everything that you've done like the the packing and the the months of just coming together it now all makes sense it kind of like just comes together and and it's just a wonderful experience i think everybody should should benefit would benefit from it so what can we do um, if you know anybody that is traveling, it's, if, if anybody is traveling and is able to take a suitcase to wherever they're going and is able to commit to finding a clinic clinic to donate these supplies, that is all like, that is the minimal thing that you, you can do. You don't have to come to the packs. I mean, it's, it's lovely to see like from start to finish, um, how it all works, but if you're too busy or if there's just not enough time and you are going on a vacation and you know that you can take a suitcase, that is, that is all that we could ask for. What about donating? If you know a, a Toronto clinic that, or, a, that is able to donate anything, then I guess, I think you would have to coordinate with, um, with Avi, um, or you can actually email us at uh, info at njttoronto.com and they'll give you more information on how to do that. So please get involved. Who knows? Maybe you will find love there. Well, if not love, then definitely many, many friends extremely passionate about this great cause.
To get more information, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today, we're going to be talking about gluten-free pierogi. Yep, gluten-free. And they're just as delicious as your favorite traditional recipe. So if you suffer from celiac disease or even a mild tolerance to gluten, there's no reason to deny yourself one of life's greatest pleasures. Delicious pierogi, arguably the most popular dish of Polish cuisine. Laura made a batch of gluten-free sweet pierogi a few days ago with a cherry filling just to test the recipe with gluten-free flour. They were delicious! And the whole batch disappeared in one sitting. The key is in the flour. I used King Arthur brand gluten-free flour, which is marked measure-for-measure flour on the bag. This makes it an easy one-for-one substitute for regular flour. But there are several brands of gluten-free flour on the market. King Arthur contains xanthan gum, which replaces the gluten in regular flour and makes your dough supple. If you can't find a gluten-free flour with xanthan gum, you can buy it separately and add about one teaspoon of xanthan gum to one cup of other gluten-free flour. So the ingredients are pretty simple. Two eggs, milk, salt, the gluten-free flour, and another egg beaten with water. Whisk together the two eggs, milk, and salt. Stir in half of the flour until it is incorporated. Then add the other half of the flour and continue to mix. When the mix is formed to make a thick, sticky dough, place it on a floured surface. If it's still too wet or sticky to handle, just add more flour. Knead the dough until you have a smooth, supple dough ball. Wrap it in plastic and let it rest for about 15 minutes. Now put half of the dough on a floured board and roll it out as thin as possible, about an eighth of an inch thick. Use lots of flour on your board and your rolling pin. Then cut the dough into three or four inch rounds or circles. I don't use the plastic pierogi molds. I prefer a round cookie cutter or even the bottom of a drinking glass. Now let's fill the pierogi with your favorite filling recipe. I love sweet fruit fillings. Our first book, Polish Classic Recipes, has several traditional varieties the savory, and the sweet. For this batch of dessert pierogi, I mashed up a bag of frozen cherries, which I defrosted earlier in the day. I started with one tester pierogi and placed about a teaspoon of cherries in the center of the dough. Always be sure to leave about a third of an inch around the entire circumference of your round. By the way, gluten-free dough tends to be a bit more crumbly than traditional dough, So if your pierogi are too fat, they could fall apart in the pot. Brush the edges of the dough circle with the third beaten egg. This egg acts as the glue to hold your pierogi together. Fold the dough in half into a half moon shape. Pinch the edges of the rounds firmly together using either your fingers or the tines of a fork. If your tester pierogi was good, the filling stayed inside and the seal was tight, Assemble the rest of the batch. Cover your finished pierogi with plastic wrap or a damp towel while you're finishing the rest, and that prevents the dough from drying out. Okay, so cooking your pierogi is easy. Bring a big pot of salty water to a boil, then turn the heat down to a low simmer. First, I boiled the tester to check my cook time. Twelve minutes was good. Cut the first one open and taste and it should be the texture of firm pasta. So if you're okay with the tester, drop the rest in gently, maybe 10 at a time, depending on the size of your pot, because pierogi like to swim free. Watch that none are stuck to the bottom. After they float to the top, 
Set your timer, and when they're done, take them out gently and drain. We topped this batch of dessert pierogi with a sweet sauce made from sour cream and sugar. Check out our Polish Classic Recipes cookbook for a wonderful variety of traditional fillings and toppings, both the savory kind and the sweet. The full recipe for this dish and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on August 29th, 2017. In the past episodes of our podcast, we have covered a large number of stories and presented to you many, many amazing people. And it's our great pleasure to be able to update you on some of our interlocutors' new achievements, as well as some new developments in the stories that we have featured. Ola Turkiewicz, who created all our jingles, a composer, singer, songwriter, arranger who returned to Poland after years in Canada, creator of the Polish independence concerts and Arboretum Roots music concerts in Poland, is now into something new and unique. She is the only Polish composer invited to take part in the collective screen dance project Le Ballet de la Nuit at the International Video Dance Festival in Burgundy. 13 composers from around the world are creating over one hour of music each to build a 13-hour-long work that will be screened for the first time in May 2018 at the Castle of Cerisy in Normandy, France. We talked with Ola in episodes 7 and 21. Remember the amazing Christmas story about our Toronto music conductor, concert organizer and music teacher Andrzej Rozbicki, who managed to change the lives of two people separated by years of not knowing about each other and thousands of kilometers. He found the estranged daughter of a Cuban man in Poland and put the two in touch. Andrzej Rozbicki, when performing in Poland a few months ago, met Karolina for the first time in person. And now he invited her to Canada to take her to Cuba, where she will meet her father and his or their family. They have all just left Toronto today and are on the way to Cuba. For Carolina, the flight to Toronto was the very first time she had been on a plane. But what she's going to experience in a few hours is going to change her life forever. I spoke to Carolina yesterday, and now I'm impatiently waiting for her to return from this dream trip. Andrzej Rozbicki, you're a real magician. This incredible story, one of the most amazing stories I think we have covered, was featured in episode 38. You've been listening to the 48th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia and links, please visit our website mypolcast.com. And while you're there, please leave your comments and share with us your thoughts, reactions and ideas. If you know of any interesting person or story that we should cover on Polcast, please let us know. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate us on your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to Polcast. And we leave you today with Polish version of famous My Way, performed by Michał Bajor. Cóż wam powiedzieć mam, gdy stoję znów na dróg rozstaję i ty widzę wśród was co każdy krok mój Pamiętają, że z dróg wybrałem ten utkaną z róż, powiedzieć mogą 
Lecz ja szedłem od lat mą własną drogą. I tak bywało iż myślałem, że nie tędy droga, że pas lepiej mówić niż kark skręcić na wysokich progach. I choć jak zbity pies chciałem nieraz podskudzić ogon, wciąż gnał Gnał mnie mój pies Mą własną drogą Kręcił się świat Ja razem z nim I rad nieraz Dobry byłem w tym Traciłem grunt Myliłem krok By znów bez tu by złapać kurs i znowu móc iść swoją drogą. W krąg moc słyszałem raz, by z boku stać i sztorm przeczekać. Lubby pochwycić wiatr, do przodu gnać i nie zwlekać. To znów radzono mi, bym oddał cześć nie swoim Bogom. Lecz ja wolałem iść moją własną drogą. Tak będę szedł o drogi szmat Choć z każdym dniem wciąż przybywa lat Dopóki sił wystarcza by Z tej ziemi pył zamienić przyby A żeby się iść, ja muszę iść Oh, what?